Welcome to Artificially Intelligent Marketing, a weekly podcast where we stay on top of the latest trends, tips, and tools in the world of marketing AI, helping you get the best results from your marketing efforts. Now let's join our hosts, Paul Avery and Martin Broadhurst. Welcome to episode 41 of Artificially Intelligent Marketing with me, Paul Avery, and my lovely co-host, Martin Broadhurst. How are you today, Martin? I am on top form and I'm just trying to stay on top of it. And by it, I mean just this deluge of AI updates, which is great for us because we get to record yet another episode of the podcast, but it can be a little bit much. Yeah, I we broke our phones last night bashing WhatsApp. And um, for listeners who have been with us for a while, you'll know that um, we tend to record about every two weeks these days, but we had uh, an episode go out on Monday. It's Friday today. And we had to do another episode, even though our last episode only came out like four days ago, because this week has been crazy. Yesterday was super crazy. And there's just loads of really important stuff to get through. And so a little bit of a bonus episode in some ways. What does that mean? It means that this is coming to your raw listeners. Martin and I have not had our usual debrief and um, sort of bashing back and forth of figuring out what different stuff means. We haven't written many scripting elements like we normally would. It's just going to be a good old dynamic conversation as we try and make sense of the massive news this week. What do we mean by massive news? We mean that Google released Gemini 1.5 Pro. So the next version of their Gemini model, not the ultra version, the pro version, but now the pro version is better than the ultra version. We'll get into details on that later, but this is pretty impressive considering they only started telling us about Gemini in December. Then, not to be outdone, OpenAI announced Sora, which is this crazy video generation model that somehow understands world physics, and we'll get into what that means. Those are the two sort of big, massive bits of information, but mixed in with all of that which probably would have been big news in any other week stability ai released a new way of chaining different models together to produce images which has a load of benefits um, and potentially new applications which is really interesting amazon released the largest text-to-speech model yet that shows some emerging capabilities and we'll look into those and just because that's clearly not enough news, there's rumours circulating that OpenAI are moving into the world of search and trying to come up with a product that would rival Google search, um, perhaps a little bit like what Perplexity does, but we just don't know. So that's what we've got to try and get into today, Martin. Crazy. Just a couple of stories there. Nothing, nothing major, right? Right, let's go first and let's talk about Gemini 1.5 Pro. So yesterday, this is Friday in the UK, it's 1.25 p.m. Last night, Thursday night in the UK, um, well, Thursday afternoon-ish, Google announced Gemini 1.5 Pro. So in essence, it's the next generation of their Gemini models, but in benchmarks, it compares really well with Gemini Ultra, which was their super-duper model that they just released like, I don't know, a week ago. Um... It uses the new mixture of experts model architecture that we're seeing. This is what Mistral's models use as well um, to improve training and make it easier to offer the surface because you don't run the whole model for every query. You use this mixture of experts model. Perhaps most importantly, it has a breakthrough context window of 1 million tokens, which for context, the biggest up until now was Claude, which had 200,000 tokens. Martin will go into in a bit more detail what token and content select means in this context. But that's a massive jump of five times against the current industry best. And in research applications, it had a 10 million token context, which is mind blowing. And we'll talk about what that means, because in essence, you know, now it can process vast amounts of text, video, audio, images, code all in one go. It is is obviously outperforming the original Gemini Pro and we should expect to see this starting to be released soon because they have already allowed developers and enterprise customers into preview mode to be able to actually play with Gemini 1.5 Pro mostly using a 128,000 token version but the 1 million token version will come later so there's all like the sort of bits and pieces you need to know about this 
Martin, tell us what does this mean? Well, let's start with that massive context window. Uh, what does that enable us to do? Well, we can think of tokens as bits of words, or they are actually, they're not bits of words. That's only when it's the text-based uh, modality. But a token is the mathematical reference for any bit of data that the language model understands. So when you get a word, that word will be chopped up into tokens, typically uh like 100 tokens will be about 75 words. But it's not just, as we're seeing with this multimodal version, it's not just words that get turned into tokens, it's images, audio, video, and the rest of it. So having a larger context window basically says that the model can handle that much more information for you to interrogate, converse, provide go back and forth with etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah it's at 100,000 it's 700,000 words of text 30,000 lines of code 11 hours of audio or 1 hour of video and that's for the 1 million context so you can times all those numbers by 10 for the 10 million context window they were able to achieve in sort of research applications so a lot of stuff yeah and to to you know that many words can sound well, what does that equate to? When Anthropic announced the 100,000 token context window, which was about a year ago, and I find this mad because we went from, I think it was about 8,000 tokens. It suddenly jumped up to 100,000 and everybody kind of lost their mind going, oh my God, there's so much that you can do with that. But when they announced that, it, it that was described as like a, like a novel. And... Now we're talking about 750,000 words and 10 novels. And that's, um, yeah, it's crazy. The more interesting thing is what they've announced it can do with that, though. There are some people that have been doing benchmark tests on ability to recall. So if you, a big context window means you can throw in a book and then can it actually extract information from that? Uh, otherwise, if it can't accurately tell you what was in the book and it's hallucinating things, then, you know, really, what's what's the point if you can't rely on it? But what they found is that it's recall ability. It's needle in a haystack test, which is basically where you plant an obscure bit of text or ask it to find one bit of detail about the information that you've provided it. Um, you know, like what color was somebody's shoes or, or whatever. It's something kind of a bit not kind of integral to the, the body of the work itself. It has 99.7% recall on a million tokens, which is far and away better than any other model that we're seeing on the market at the moment. Yeah, it's really interesting because having crawled through the um, research paper and tried to get my head around, you know, what this means for marketers... That is a seriously impressive recall rate um, to the tune of you could basically give it a whole corpus of information about your business, um, say for a junior employee to come in and actually have a chat bot that they can speak to about all your systems, documents, processes, sales decks, whatever. If that was somehow encoded in that and Gemini Pro is obviously multimodal, um, so it could, it could take recordings of meetings or you know screen share videos of meetings pictures of whiteboards and basically answer questions by keeping all of that information in its context window versus using something like um, retrieval augmented generation which at least to untrained folks like martin and i sounds like it doesn't work that well so this of uh, being able to import all this information in the context window is really powerful i will say martin i, I went digging the word hallucination is mentioned once in the entire research paper in reference to Claude, not in reference to itself. Um, <laughs> not because it's saying that Claude hallucinates a lot, but actually it's saying Claude doesn't because Claude will just right. refuse to answer rather than hallucinate, which is one of my favorite things about Claude and still my model of yeah. choice for summarizing transcripts of calls and what have you. Um, and there's a separate quote, I think it might be from Sundar Pichai, 
but it might be Demis Savas, not sure. Someone at Google saying the model still hallucinates. And so it's interesting. It has a great retrieval score, but it's still going to make stuff up every now and again, which I wonder, Martin, for all of this power, is that going to end up still making it somewhat limited for some applications? We've talked about the issues of hallucination in things like chatbots, customer-facing chatbots, for example. Well, I think what you end up doing when it goes to be deployed in production in any environment is actually you're not just deploying a raw interface with the model. You're having to have layers where there is maybe a generation you have your initial inference where you have your prompt but then that's run through a series of checks before it presents the final output to the end user and these checks are basically saying is any of this right or wrong um, the perplexity api at the moment has a kind of fact checking element built into it so if you were doing uh, let's say you wanted a chatbot on your website that was also connected to the web you could do that with the perplexity api and i suspect that's the kind of thing that we're going to start seeing is um, you don't just necessarily interact with the raw model. There's a layer of steps before the output is presented. Right. And Gemini already, the chatbot version Gemini already has that little Google button that you can click on that, that will fact check certain things that have been output. So um, I think that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in real world applications as to whether hallucinating about something random you've asked the model like ChatGPT and you say, you know, what are the 10 most important foods that dolphins eat and it makes one of them up, right? Versus asking it something specific about a corpus of information that you've given it and whether that retrieval of 99.7% basically to all intents and purposes means it doesn't really make any meaningful mistakes on information in the context window. Because then you end up getting two slightly different use cases, right? Like mm. if you feed it the context... And it can be extremely accurate about the context information that's been given. When if and and if indeed this ten million token window is becomes a commercial reality, which given the rate of development of all these tools, it almost certainly will be. That's a really interesting way of solving the hallucination problem. I'd be in fact, I hope someone who listens to this, maybe we've got some machine learning experts, will message us on the LinkedIn's or the Twitters and let us know. Um, what they think about that because I'd be I'd be interested to see if that opens up or solidifies some business applications that until now hallucinations have got in the way of. Hallucinations are such a funny one because they are inherent in what the tool does, right? The, all the tool is just... In fact, a great way for people to kind of experiment with these models and, and see what going on underneath the hood is go to something like playground.openai.com and, and start actually interacting with the raw model not the filtered version through chat gpt because when you start interacting with the raw model and you start playing around with things like the temperature setting you'll see like how hallucinations come about so if you put the temperature setting really low hallucinations very limited but also the range of things that it will talk to you about is creativity is is limited. It's just going to be really uh, literal and not... It's going to be very literal and very precise, should I say. Right. When you put the temperature up to... In fact, actually, it's, it's completely absurd, and I don't know why they allow you to do this. If you change the temperature setting to 2, which is the highest setting it can be, and then run the, the prompt... It's gibberish. It's pure gibberish. Not even like a couple of words. It, it is just like random characters. It's bits of code. It's absolutely wild. Right? So you say to it, write me a strap line for an ice cream shop, temperature two. It's just gobbledygook. Well, that's your problem. Your ice cream melted. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that's cool because ultimately, I think they're trying to show the range of influence that the temperature setting can have, which is if it's high... Yep model performance basically falls apart completely absolutely right yeah it's interesting let's talk a little bit about some of the examples mine that they listed out on the gemini 1.5 pro launch blog post because we've talked about business applications and will hallucinations still be a problem but crumbs some of those ex examples are pretty exciting weren't they uh, yeah so the the one that 
caught both of our attention was the the Buster Keaton video, forty four minute silent movie, uploaded and then interrogated with the model. So asked to describe the plot, asked to identify certain bits of information from the plot or from the from the video. For example, there's a particular scene where somebody takes it's like a receipt or a ticket out of their pocket and then that's shown to camera and it's got some detail on it about like the business that was working and the, the product that was offered kind of thing. And that uh, they asked the model to explain and answer what was on that. And it does that accurately and it gives them a timestamp of the point where it happens in the in the video. Which is kind of mind-blowing, where you can just give it a video. Bear in mind, it's not trained to do this at all. It isn't trained on how to search and interrogate it. It's just next token prediction. I find that absolutely bonkers. Uh, the other thing that it can do was the multimodality element of it allows them to do a very loose pencil sketch just a line drawing put that in as a prompt and say give me the timestamp for where this happens and it accurately works out what the rough sketch is and it is a very rough sketch it's the roughest of rough sketches and it says yeah this is the the bit where you want to to go so it understands what's going on in a silent movie that's 44 minutes long so you know this is no like five second animated gif this is a lot of frames and it understands the context the plot it can read the text in it it can well it, <laughs> i would love to see and and push the limits of, of what that can do because again applications for that are are quite vast in the sense that well you've suddenly opened up new ways to interrogate company data so training videos what could you do with that how can you get people if you've got manuals so i'm just thinking about if you've got a product and it's you've got some online videos with maintenance the idea that then you can connect your chatbot to a front-end customer service tool where customers can say, how do I do this thing? And it can locate the exact point in a library of videos and say, this is the scene that you're looking for. That's amazing. If you're a, a, a washing machine or a you know, company that manufactures consumer goods and you can just pinpoint people to the exact spot based on people's natural language questions or people taking a photo of the product going, how do I fix this bit or what that? That opens up all sorts of avenues for for uh, customer support and engagement. Yes, I think I love the way all these convergent technologies start to influence each other because, you know, when Meta released the Oculus Quest 2 and Quest and sort of VR headsets started to become at least a little bit more mainstream and maybe they will or won't with the Vision Pro, there was sort of futurists would speculate on oh where's this all going and people would imagine that we're all walking around in glasses that have a overlay we see the world but they've got a digital overlay on it and that things in our field of view would like pop up and tell us stuff about the world like oh you're running out of um breakfast cereal or this is the thing that's broken in your washing machine right to your point yeah but a lot of the speculation at that time was about how do we miniaturize down the technology of a big chunky headset, which of course we haven't achieved yet, although Meta's Ray-Ban glasses are kind of interesting and proven quite popular because they're just a set of glasses with cameras and mic in. So the AI can see what you see and then speak to you, right? It can't overlay anything in your field of view, but maybe that would still be valuable, right? Um, and I think this is the point, which is at the time, nobody seemed to realize that, or I'm sure lots of people realise, but no one seemed, from what I could see, to be talking about the issues that come with a computer actually understanding what you're looking at and what these capabilities now open up when you look at the converging technologies of VR, cameras and sensors everywhere, but actually AI's ability to understand what it's seeing, what it's hearing, what it's reading, that's what just opens up a huge plethora of capabilities 
the likes of which I don't even think we can all imagine yet, if I'm really honest. But it will be driven by convergent technology evolution. You, you wouldn't be able to do it without improvements in VR. You wouldn't be able to do it without improvements in AI. You wouldn't be able to do it without reductions in cost for manufacturing of all of these things. But all those things together, you wouldn't be able to do it without the internet. The fact that we even have large language models and that we all as a, as a human species went diving down this rabbit hole was because we threw a corpus of information into a single place that even made it possible to train the models. We were talking offline about YouTube and how much data there is in YouTube and how we as the human race have just spent the last 10, 15 years just producing all the data that's even going to enable all of this stuff. And I'm sure smart people at the time who were collecting it all probably predicted it. But certainly I had no idea that this is where it would lead us. And it's it's just mind-blowing. It's all very exciting. Until we get our hands on it, though, let's uh, reserve judgment, as is always the way with these things. I have joined the wait list, um, so that's that's quite exciting. If you are in the UK and you want to join the wait list, you do have to sign up with a VPN to the AI studio on Google. If you try and do it with a UK IP, it says, no, sorry. I think the earliest I'm going to get to play with it is in Magi, which is a tool we've talked about on the podcast before. Um, it, it, I'm doing it a disservice to say it's a skin of models uh, of ChatGPT that basically allows you to interact with different models. It's got a hell of a lot more going on inside it these days than that. Um, but what I really love about what the developer Dustin and the team are doing is they add new models all the time. So I can access Gemini Pro 1.0 through that system. And he's already promised on the Facebook group that the minute that he can roll that system out and match I with 1.5, we'll get to play with it. So I suspect that'll be my first chance. Um, talking about things that we want to play with, let's talk about um, Sora and OpenAI, the trolls. Gemini 1.5 Pro drops. Three hours later, OpenAI goes, oh, you think that's good? Check out this. Tell tell the listeners about Sora. Talk about raining on someone's parade, hey? That big announcement from Google, and then they come out with, hey, look at all of these one-minute-long HD quality videos produced using only text inputs. Aren't they amazing? And the internet went wild nobody cared for gemini pro 1.5 within five minutes of this announcement it was crazy my timeline was absolutely full of it so uh, yeah this is OpenAI's text-to-video model sora that creates realistic videos from text-based instructions as i mentioned it's up to one minute in length they are really high quality so hd videos and one of the fascinating things about them is that they have cut scenes in them. So it's not just one shot. It will interchange like you would see in an advert or in a film or whatever. It's uh, When I saw that, that was, I think, that bar the quality, and the quality is, is very good. Seeing that blew my mind slightly. That was That was really impressive. A couple of other things to, to note about this model. Um, it understands language incredibly well, enabling very accurate interpretations of the written prompts. It understands physics very well and, and the physical world. So in one of the videos, there is a stylish Japanese woman walking down a street and there's lots of puddles on the floor with various kind of city lighting and urban lighting in the background and you can see reflections in the puddles and in the windows and you'll see the reflections of other pedestrians within those puddles um so it, it kind of understands all of the the light and the environment as well it does struggle with some more complex physics in fact i think in the uh <laughs> in the blog post announcing it they talk about this and uh, complex physics, such as you might see the video where somebody takes a bite out of a biscuit and then when they remove the biscuit from their mouth, the biscuit is still a whole biscuit, not got any of it. And I think we can all agree that 
biscuit physics is the is the next frontier of science to to, to crack if they can solve that it'd be pretty sweet is all i'm gonna yeah. say but um the there is a video on the so there's a if you want to read more about this and to be honest we're going to do our best to explain how awesome these videos are but if you really want to know what we're talking about you need to go read the blog post on the open ai site which also has a link to a longer article about that goes into a bit more detail about how the model works and what it's capable of. And in the second one, the more detailed one, there is a video where someone bites a burger and the burger comes out of the mouth bitten. So it's there are clearly weaknesses in the model, but there are some incredible things that it can definitely do. It's um It's been built using the diffusion models and the transformer architecture. So diffusion model is what? The DALI 3 model is built on and Transformers is what's really underpinning everything. GPT, the T stands for Transformers, right? So uh, this is the underlying technology that they've gone all in on. And there were some interesting notes, weren't there, about what this means for where AI is heading in terms of understanding the physical world. Yeah, I mean, there's two quotes that we're going to read out verbatim. One of them is from the like launch blog post and one is from the sort of more technical deep dive of how, how this all works. They mean the same thing in slightly different ways, but I just think it's interesting to think about them, especially because we have to work under the assumption that whatever we see today, the labs, the people in the labs doing the work are six to 12 months ahead of us, right? So they are on the cutting edge. Uh, Martin and I were talking off air as it relates to Sora about how a couple of months ago, maybe back end of 2024, Sam Altman said he'd seen something that he felt was the next step change forward that kind of blew his mind. And I'd have to guess it's this. If it's not this and there's something even more powerful than this, then holy crumbs are in for a pretty interesting three or four months. But here's the quotes, right? So the first one, which is uh, at the bottom of the research preview is, we believe the capabilities Sora has today demonstrate that continued scaling of video models is a promising path towards the development of capable simulators of the physical and digital world and the objects, animals and people that live within them, right? Quote one, hold your thoughts, Martin, because I know you've been thinking about this a lot, right? Quote number two, which is at the bottom of the launch post. Sora serves as a foundation for models that can understand and simulate the real world, a capability we believe will be an important milestone for achieving AGI. This model, as Martin just alluded to, is a GPT. It predicts the next thing about the, based on the things that came before it. How on earth do we see this emerging capability to sort of understand the physics of the world and, and output them based on a text-based prompt i mean mine thoughts the researchers have really been confident about this for some time i know there's some dispute if you were to listen to the likes of jan lecun from meta he would argue that there, there are limitations to this but clearly open ai see this as the direction of travel and then it's it's a question of scale and compute if you keep throwing more and more of that at it these transformer models will get them a long way towards AGI. And, and this is a really interesting step in helping these models to develop what some might call a, a world model, that idea of understanding the world around them. And, and GPT-4 had some elements of, from a, from a text-based perspective, having something of a world model within it. They think in the research paper when they announced it, they gave the example of with GPT-3, if you have described a a house and said you walk through the front door, on the left there's a kitchen, a living room, on the right, and, and you kind of gave a visual, uh, or sorry, a verbal description or written description of, of the layout of a house. And then you said things like... Um, what was the example I give? I think if you walk into the bedroom, you put something on the bed, you pick it up, you walk into the uh, bathroom, where is the thing? And GPT-3 would be like, it's on the bed. Whereas GPT-4 had this understanding, it would know that you picked it up and you've now carried it into, into the bathroom. 
and it was also able to give you like visual reasoning um with maps so there was, there was evidence of this happening already um now seeing this manifested in video is yeah very very impressive yeah like a like an emerging understanding of cause and effect in the real world which is interesting i mean microsoft released that 100 page paper sparks of agi about gpt4 and its emergent capabilities i mean you know when yana kun doesn't think this is the route so certainly someone who knows what he's talking about right so the fact that there is divergent opinion in the world's leading experts in terms of what these models are going to be capable of and what they're even capable of now um i in terms of really capable of is interesting but i was walking the dog today martin and i was trying to think about what does all this mean and i was just trying to reflect upon how a two-year-old learns about the world which is through its eyes its ears its sense of touch so a lot of the things that a child is using as raw inputs to learn about the world is what we've given these large language models if the gpt neural net framework is able to learn in inverted commas in a similar way to the human brain that wouldn't be a surprise we kind of came up with the idea based on the fact that's how the brain works we've just simulated it in a different way using silicon than biological components so it doesn't surprise me perhaps then that you feed it enough information i, I should say i think the silicon based version we've created is like kind of crappy compared to biology's ability to draw general principles from very little data because our system we've built is crappy we have to give it petabytes of data for it to be able to pull out those patterns whereas somehow the human brain is able to learn them much faster and much better and i'm sure as we improve our models and architecture maybe that's where we'll see the biggest improvements but feeding it that information and its ability to just learn like a child almost and then we were talking about this off air and i was mentioning that wouldn't it be interesting if you took one of these models and then trained it based on two cameras worth of data not one like you gave it human eyes so instead of it having to infer the world from one static 2d picture it had two pictures of the same thing stereoscopic vision so we could understand depth a bit more like we were and how cool that would be and then we were like oh meta have been recording it for at least four or five years probably longer not just from two cameras but from like 12 so imagine the data repository that they've got for this type of model training of the real world. And now people are out walking about the streets in their Vision Pros, collecting multi-camera data of the real world. So, and the fact that we've been feeding all this data for, to YouTube for 10, 15, 20 years, like the amount of data out there to train these models these tech companies have been so much more clever than I gave them credit for in terms of collecting all this data because if they're able to now use it to give computers this real sense of how the world works, again, imagine the applications that's going to open up. Yeah, I feed more into it, get more out, right? And it was interesting you mentioned about how do toddlers learn about the world and how do animals learn about the world because that's actually Jan Lucan's point about the limitations of transformers right there's only so far you can go all of this extra sensory input is what helps us build our understanding of the world how do you get a large language model to understand things like proprioception or you know temperature and and gravity and all of these external forces that we encounter and and what have you it, it's very difficult to get there and the human brain can do it incredibly efficiently that's the the advantage that that biology has right imagine we end up doing all this work and over like the course of like a thousand years and then we're like at some point we switch to biological components because they're much better than silicon and we basically <laughs> just create humans <laughs> that would be quite funny um couple of last few bits on this and then we'll get into like why this is important for marketing and business folk um read the research paper because some of the things this tool can do are much more mind-blowing for me than the launch blog post mentions and therefore that a lot of the stuff you'll see being shared online 
for me is missing the point of some critical stuff, especially when it comes to things like marketing applications. So I'll give you an example. It's not just text to video, it's image to video, and you can give it a video and it will imagine what the big first 10 seconds or adding an extra 10 seconds to that video might look like. So there's lots of creative capabilities for marketers here that we'll only just start scratching the surface of when, when we get access to this. In some examples on the research paper, they um, upload like a flat 2D image of some monsters. It's just like um, a vector image of some characters, but then it animates them in a realistic way, like it waves their hands and it moves their legs. So think of all those static graphics that you've got in all your presentations and on your website, because hey, it would be cool if these animated, they'd be more interesting, but it's just not worth paying an animator to do the work because it just doesn't add enough value. Expect an explosion in animated everything just because you can, mm -hmm. at no cost. Um, some of the examples are really cool. Um, this extends to photorealistic um, video from an image. So there's an example of a dog wearing a, a beret, which I suspect was generated by, in fact, it was generated by Dolly 3. And then the video is created of that dog and it just looks like a video of a dog, like it was a real dog. Like it's absolutely mind-blowing. Then... There's an example where they're able to create an infinitely looping video that you have to watch for about four or five cycles to get your head around where it loops, which is extremely clever. I wonder what we can do with that. There's a video to video editing. So there's a video shot of a car driving along a road in a forest. And then the prompt is to change the setting to be a lush jungle. And it looks it looks amazing. Like it looks very similar to the original input video. Imagine some of those videos we saw in the early days of Runway where people were filming themselves on their phone and then creating like stylized animations based on their own movement, but now photo real. How does this change the gaming industry? How does this change the CGI video effects industry? How does this open up CGI level capabilities to brands in the B2B and B2C space that would have normally have gone, of course I can't afford to spend two years and millions of dollars on Pixar level engineers to create and animators to create this level of stuff. Oh, I did it when I went out in my garden with my phone and then put it through a text prompt. And then however long this model takes to render, we don't know that yet. Four minutes later, I get this thing. It's absolutely mind blowing. The videos are a minute long. Most things lose coherence at 10, 15 seconds, so forth. That's mind-blowing. And then the last thing that just like, again, I don't even know how we're going to use this. I just know that it's cool. They've got this interpolation effect. Have you, have you seen this, Martin? Uh, no, I missed this bit. Go check it out. So basically, they've got two videos, which as far as I understand it, were both synthesized by Sora. And then they interpolate the videos. And I I'm not even sure I can really explain what that means. In one video, they're shot, they're, they've either shot or I suspect synthesized a drone flying around a ruin. So it's a drone flying around a ruin as if it's been shot by a drone above it, right? Then the other video is, and again, who knows how they created this, must be synthetic because it's a butterfly sw swimming, flying around a coral reef. Then they interpolate the videos. So the video starts as a drone flying around the ruins and then the drone morphs into the butterfly and the ruins morph to make it look like they've been created out of coral. Like it's right. crazy. All 1080p, all photorealistic. I don't even think we've started to begin to think about how you could leverage those types of interesting effects to do stuff. And, you know, we're thinking big picture creative here. I think if you're a B2B um, strategist, brand manager, creative director, you are going to get to be able to do cool things in your business or for your clients that were like previously so cost prohibitive as to be ridiculous to have even thought about them. Prepare to unleash your imaginations because that is what this technology, I believe, is going to allow. And I'm sure it will have loads of problems and artifacts and you'll never, it might take 50 prompts to get the thing that you want. It's still going to be faster and less expensive than hiring 
420 people film crew and like 42 animators of Pixar level quality. I just think it's cool. Should we move on yeah. to our next and, story? Oh, sorry, mine. Uh, just in, in in conclusion there, I mean, if you are a videographer or you've been making a bit of income from licensing stock video footage, maybe start diversifying those revenue streams. Uh, uh, indeed. I, I, I remember when um, Runway's capabilities were really starting to be a bit more controllable and people were shooting those 90 second videos where they obviously had to stitch all the videos they created together yeah. and as people who've played with runway and got poor results we could only imagine how long that would have taken people right mine um, yeah a lot of yeah, it yeah absolutely <laughs> i i cannot wait to see the first short three four five minutes created with this technology i bet you could do it in a day easy mm. i think the limitation then will be consistent characters and locales how easy is that to do and then of course at some point we're going to want human characters that speak and interact we're going to have the synthetic voices as we'll see a bit later um but how easy is it going to be to get a human to speak and have their mouth move in time with the speech and all that stuff but it sounds stupid that we would even think about that as a possibility but we may we may be months from that or maybe a year or two, but not decades. If you look at this leap, I mean, it's it's mind blowing. It's mind blowing. Oh, right. Everybody, take a deep breath. Shall we move on to the next story, mine? Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. Right. Let's talk um, stable cascade. Any other week, I think this would be really, really cool and interesting. But compared to the things we've talked about already today, I guess it's almost kind of a little bit less interesting than it might have been. But it's still it's still important, I think, for us marketers to know about. Because um, Stability AI have released a new text image generation model, um, which has some slightly different things about it compared to the models we've seen so far. So unlike stable diffusion, the sort of normal model, or the standard model that most tools are using, which is just one single large model, Stable Cascade is basically a three-stage architecture of smaller models that work together, um, creatively called Stage A, Stage B, and Stage C. At least it does uh, what it says on the tin, right? Um, basically, the way that it works is it makes it extremely efficient to train and fine-tune the model because instead of working with one massive model, you're working with three smaller models that interact. Um, and some of the data around this is that it, there's 16 times cost reduction over fine-tuning an equivalently sized stable diffusion model. Why is this important? Because if you want to fine-tune a model as a developer or... To, for a custom use case and you want to feed it images and information to help shape what it outputs obviously you don't want that to be too expensive um, the image quality that produces is extremely um, high quality so it's not like they've lost any quality in terms of introducing this new way of doing things um, and it's got image masking so for example you can like blank out a bit of an image and then it will regenerate the image in that space so in the example there's a cat they remove the cat's head and upper body and then they output it as a dog in the same locale works really well they generate images based on line drawings so um we've obviously got in clip drop some stability ai driven sketching tools where you do a sketch and then the tool is able to produce an image based on the sketch this is very very similar to that it can upscale um, images as well but all of this is being done with this smaller easier to manage model architecture which is just finding new and more interesting ways to be able to to make it possible to train models build models um and on much simpler hardware I'm, I'm not sure if they mention anywhere that you can run this locally on like a computer rather than having to use it in the cloud i suspect i mean you can run stable diffusion on your laptop it's just slow so i suspect this will allow local image generation um much better than using current level of stable diffusion models so hey if you've just got a laptop with a decent gpu in it you can probably run this model pretty well but we've got all this stuff happening in video we've got gemini pro 1.5 and all this cool stuff but we're racing ahead not just in video but images stuff is improving it's just so much going on in this area. So again, if you're a marketer, really thinking about the creative t tool set that you've got available to you to do your work. 
let's talk text-to-speech. We've done video, we've done image, we've done retrieval of information in text documents. Let's talk a little bit about text image. Mine, tell us about the news from Amazon this week. Well, I nearly missed this, but you brought it to my attention, and I'm glad you did because it's a fascinating update in a in an area that we normally just talk about with Eleven Labs and well, OpenAI announced their text to speech model at uh, the Developer Day, and that was very good. But it's not an area that we focus on greatly. So Amazon have announced uh, a new large scale text to speech AI model called Base. TTS, so base uh, text-to-speech, and it exhibits some interesting emergent abilities. And the researchers train this model thinking that these might occur, that they might achieve some of these emergent abilities. So just a bit of background on it, it's uh, the largest text-to-speech model to date, 980 million parameters, trained on 100 thousand hours of public domain speech data 90 percent of which is english 10 percent dutch german and spanish they found the researchers found that training a tts model on just 10,000 to 100,000 hours of speech can result in some emergent abilities similar to the emergent abilities that we see when you scale up the data and the the parameters in large language models. So the kinds of things that it's emerged, uh, the capabilities that have emerged from it, include a significantly improved ability to naturally speak certain elements of complex sentences, such as compound nouns, emotions, foreign words, the kinds of things that normally trip up a text-to-speech engine. It also had punctuation. So if you added a piece of script and it had like hashtag just saying, that phrase would tip up, trip up TTS models historically, but now they can they can do that. It has uncanny naturalness. Uh, can mimic speaker characteristics with just a few seconds of reference audio, all the kind of stuff that is kind of almost there with the existing models. And I'm really excited to get my hands on this because I've actually just upgraded my Eleven Labs subscription to get the fine-tuned voice clone, the professional voice cloning. And for that, they require about three hours of audio is what they recommend. So I'm really interested to see how closely this new model can match somebody's voice. With the existing models, things like Eleven Labs and other text-to-speech providers, if you try and clone your voice, rather than do a pure clone from scratch of your voice, what actually happens is the model tries to fit your voice to one of the existing voices which if you're british one of the things that you'll often find is that it overfits to a british voice which is can make you sound more rp in your pronunciation more old school bbc yeah bbc english harsh yeah yeah that received pronunciation is a problem, right? Because that's not how actually most people in in Britain would talk in 2024. So I'd be really curious to see, can it capture our actual dialect tone from just a a, a couple of minutes of recording? Or actually, you still need quite a bit of fine tuning. This area for me is one of the most exciting and interesting areas of AI development for content marketing. In particular, if you're a content marketer, I think there's so much that you can do with this because of the the just vast amount of video content being consumed. If you can scale up your content production for social snippets and things like that without you having to sit and record and re-record and, you know, all of the editing process, you can just get the voice that you like and, and 
or get your own voice and type in some text and have it read aloud for you on a social post or something. I think there's massive potential there. But at the moment, I think the tools aren't quite up to the job. So this sounds very promising. Yeah, it's interesting. We, we've we got an agenda item for one of our podcast episodes, but there's always, or recently, has been too much exciting news for us to get to it where we want to deep dive into what does marketing and content consumption look like in a post? It was going to be in a post GPT-5 world, but I think you can add the base TTS model to that and Sora and Gemini 1.5 Pro. But yeah, you've the ability to create high quality content at scale, whether that's video, audio, text is we're basically already there, but I don't think we've quite seen the ramifications of yet as content marketers. How does that change how people consume information? How does that change how brands create information? Because I feel like I'm hooked to my devices already just trying to keep up with the information flow. Now, this is just all lowering barriers to create inf- more information that I can also engage with in other domains. Like like one of the benefits of text-to-speech is listening to podcasts I love because when I'm walking the dog, my ears aren't really doing anything, but the rest of me is, my eyes and my body. You know, it's not the same as when trying to read a book or sit at a computer. So I do think... I do think we should get into that on one episode, Martin. We probably don't have time today because we're near the end of the episode, but all the barriers dropping means more deluge of stuff. Only 24 hours in a day, though. Well, this is it. So then it becomes about prioritization, the quality of the content that you're consuming. None of this stuff is doing any of the thought behind what would be useful for people to hear about what unique expertise and viewpoints do you have that you can share as a company, as a person. That bit's obviously still the critical bit that's um, far from automatable at this point. But um, I've listened and maybe we'll, in the edit, we'll uh, add a few of the audio clips from this paper in because they're kind of really interesting um, in the way that I, when I think about this, I'm always thinking because I've got a lot of books on my Kindle. I buy a lot of audio books. But I've got a lot of Kindle books where there isn't an audiobook version. And I'm like, that sucks. I want to listen to this when I'm walking the dock. I don't want to read it because I'm finding that my time to sit down and read long form content is ever more reduced. So I'm like, cool. When do I click a button in Kindle and listen to the audiobook version of a book that doesn't have an audiobook recording? One of the criticisms of that has been performance, right? But a couple of these um, audio examples, they must be trained on those types of performances because a lot of them are like, stories talking about characters speaking to each other and then the the synthetic voice reading will be like Paul entered the room and he looked to Martin and he whispered Martin we gotta be careful the dragon's over there Martin looked frightened and like the these examples that have been given the model knows to like I can't even describe what that is like put on a different voice to imply that a character speaking to another character but also and I chose the whispering example deliberately because one of the examples is whispering. And that would be one of the main barriers, I think, because nobody wants to listen to an audio book that's monotone, basically, right? And these these text-to-speech engines, they're way better than monotone. But the ability to actually perform in them, wow. I think that's where they... Yeah. I mean, when bass even stands for... The, the E in bass stands for emergent abilities. So they, you know, they're not... They're... they're hanging their hat on this as we trained it on a load of stuff and it can do things that it shouldn't really be able to do but and that we could perhaps have possibly predicted but it's much better than we thought it would be so what a week what a week let's talk the last story mine because um because you spotted some interesting stuff online about this and again in the context of everything else that's happened this week this is probably a bit like mm, well, so just a rumor meh. but it probably would have had top billing <laughs> last week martin so let's let's imagine it's last week dear listener martin tell us about the rumor about open ai and search so there's a report in the information which is fast becoming my number one source of interesting content when it comes to the ai and technology field that open ai is developing a web search product that will leverage microsoft bing's infrastructure in a move to basically position themselves up against uh, uh, Google in the search domain. The timing is interesting. So 
Satya Nadella had declared a year ago that Microsoft was making Google dance by infusing Bing with OpenAI's uh, AI prowess. And despite that, Bing's market share of the surge market has, has barely moved, really. But we know that there is demand for AI-powered search. And how do we know that? Well, there is already an AI-driven search engine on the market, Perplexity. And Perplexity has been grabbing people's attention. It recently had a half a billion dollar valuation, big investors going in, including Jeff Bezos. Um, it's been, I think it was $100 million it raised in its recent round. It was reported that they have $8 million in annually recurring revenue. So that's people paying a subscription to access a search engine. So there is clearly an appetite and a shift in the way that people are searching. And when I see people talking about the way that they use perplexity and when I reflect on my own um, use of perplexity, I recognize that I go to it for answers immediately. I don't want to be presented with a link to find the answers. I want the answer given to me. And it looks like OpenAI have realized that that's what other people want and they are well positioned to give it to people. Yeah, it's... um. It was obviously a rumor that was circulating, but then you spotted a post by um, AI guru, Ethan Mollock, who we've mentioned before on the podcast. And one of the things that we're seeing as a consistent pattern with Ethan is that some open AI will drop some news and then he'll have a nice long post written about it for his Substack email newsletter because he's had it for a month already. And he's very, very good at keeping quiet about what he's got access to until everybody else in the world knows. Um, but you spotted a post on LinkedIn related to this that we thought was interesting and maybe implied that Ethan has access already. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize the post. and Basically, it's about it's sort of using iron bridges as a metaphor because he talks about how the first iron bridge was made using the same approaches that woodworkers would have used because no one really knew how to use and work with iron. So they applied what they knew to this new material. But of course, we know today that woodworking um, strategies and approaches are not appropriate for iron. You have to think about the problems that you're trying to solve with the material that you've got in hand in a different way and take different approaches. And then he goes on to say... For example, AI-powered search is adding a new gloss to an old paradigm. Instead, we can focus on the reasons we search and try new ways to solve the problem. So why replicate search engines when even a GPT-4 class AI is capable of silently observing what you do and jumping in at the right moment to help provide informational suggestions if you seem to be confused or faltering? Well, dear listener... If, it, if past behavior is a reasonable predictor of future behavior, what is it that Ethan's playing with that we don't have access to yet? Oh, it does open some interesting possibilities. You've got to think that that is, you know, that's that kind of subtweet-esque. He's onto something. He knows something. That would be the guess. And I, I look at Gemini Chat's Google button that allows you to basically fact search the output that you've just generated to see if it's, you know, either wrong or can be substantiated by information available on the internet. And one has to assume that that sort of button, at the very least, is coming to ChatGPT, right? You get an output and you'll be able to check its validity. And then maybe if you've got these tools baked into a tool like Word, you're writing about something, you guess maybe or you get it to generate a bit of an output to, for a paragraph that you're working on and then it's silently searching other information sources in the background making suggestions to you like oh if you thought about whether this point might be important for your blog post as well here's some information about it we can write you your next paragraph if you want us to type of stuff i guess i mean i'm thinking about it very much like a marketer there i guess but yeah all of which comes at the same time as we know it's been reported this week that OpenAI is also investing quite heavily in the development of AI agents. So talk about convergence of different technologies. Mm. 
where will this lead us, eh? So I think that's a, probably a great place to close out the episode because it's been a crazy week. I never thought we would see this acceleration with Gemini that we've seen. And that context window could really open up some interesting new applications. Um, we've said it before on the podcast, if you're not recording and archiving a lot of your meetings, client calls, customer service calls, record them, right? Even if the technologies are not quite there today to do what you might want to do with them, they will be tomorrow. So get the data now, right? Um, so that Gemini's cool. Sora, I mean, who saw that coming? That is absolutely mind-blowing. But your point about agents, supported search or whatever it, this thing is that Ethan's referencing to, I don't even think, well, it's 16th of February, 2024. We are not half done in terms of what we're going to see by the end of the year. And I think this week has taught me that as much as I feel like we're very close to it and can predict some of the things that are going to happen, I would not have seen that Sora video thing coming. No, no, that, that I would have expected 2025. That's when we'll see that kind of quality. Yeah. So uh, we can't promise you such an uh, earth shaking episode next week, but we can promise you we'll be here. There'll be a little bit of Derby County. There'll be a little bit of banter and there'll be a little bit of AI news. So, until then, if you find this valuable, subscribe, share it with people who you think might also enjoy it. Martin, have a fab weekend, and I look forward to speaking to you soon. See ya. Thank you for listening to Artificially Intelligent Marketing. To stay on top of the latest trends, tips, and tools in the world of marketing AI, be sure to subscribe. We look forward to seeing you again next week.